Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, good thing we got the key to the medicine cabinet, because it's SST-210, the Volcano Suns Farst LP. And man, I love that we are getting into Volcano Suns for the first time. I didn't really realize it until I was listening to everything Volcano Suns, everything, you know, related to that this week. And I'm like, I'm just such a huge fan and I can't wait to get into it. And even better, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Peter Prescott on the show. Yeah, the interview is amazing. And one of the things that really struck me this week is, man, oh man, like, Peter, very prolific. All of it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, wow, all of it is good. And I can't wait to get into it. Before we do that, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, I will. I have a independent project records update, Ryan. Mm. So as I mentioned recently, Bruce Liker has reactivated his legendary label. And this time around, he's teamed up with Jeffrey Clark lead vocalist and songwriter in the band Shiva Burlesque. He's mm. kind of, they've kind of partnered on this, on this reboot. So I want to talk about a few of their recent spate of releases and there's a whole bunch more coming. So, and their website looks great if you haven't been there yet. Uh, th the first is this fucking amazing San Francisco band, the Ophelias, who were active 1985 to 1989. Independent Project Records has released this fantastic comp called Bear Bodkin. Basically the best of their three albums, two of which were originally on Rough Trade. Uh, and it also includes five previously unreleased studio tracks. There's a band camp for the band that has the original albums up on it. The package, of course, like all things IPR, is top notch. Yeah. Uh, liner notes, band history written in November of last year. So it's a new write-up. Liner notes and band history written in November of last year by David Frick, who championed the band in Rolling Stone back in 89. And here's what he said. He, he does a throwback to this article he wrote in Rolling Stone in 89. A potent tab of futurist acid pop with a jagged ensemble intensity that sounds like vintage English freak beat laced with post-punk menace. Ooh. The band is just insane. It's like proggy at times, psychedelic folk rock. One minute they sound like something off Led Zeppelin three, the next minute like T-Rex. But they're singing about Shakespeare, like a Shakespearean soliloquy, instead of, you know, singing about banging a gong. Just okay. totally wild and unique band. Any any mentions of the Shire? I don't think so. That's oh. that's token, man. Not yeah. Not Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Get your literary references straight. Jeez. Okay. Well, I thought uh, you mentioned Zeppelin, so I thought you were going to go to the Shire, <laughs> but that's cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I love it. Okay. The other next excellent new IPR release I want to highlight is the Shiver Burlesque. Uh, it's their 1990 album, Mercury Blues, which was remastered last year and has been reissued as uh, an extended album. A full album's worth of demos and unreleased tracks. They call that portion Skullduggery. Again, amazing band history in the liner notes. Again, from David Frick, written last year. So both of these are, you know, new kind of bios that he wrote. Fantastic photos also. The band was fronted, as I mentioned, by singer and guitarist Jeffrey Clark and guitarist Grant Lee Phillips. 
mm. uh, both of whom went on to distinguish solo careers after the yeah. band dissolved. Yeah. The liner notes start out by talking about David Frick seeing them perform at the Pyramid Club in New York on a bill in between the Barbecue Killers and Savage mm. Republic. Whoa. He says in the liner notes, a marriage of Joy Division's shadowy abstractions and love's forever changes. He says, I wrote of Shiver Burlesque in Britain's Melody Maker that summer with additional references to Leonard Cohen, the Beatles, and the Buzzcocks. This is just really killer stuff, and if IPR has a sound, and I, I think they do, uh, this really kind of encapsulates it for me. It's gothy, it has that sweeping, epic, hallucinatory sound that bands like Savage Republic and Scenic had. Mm. It's good. You'd like it. Is David Frick that guy that you used to see in all the documentaries way back when that had like Ramon's haircut? Is that yeah. the guy? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I figured so. So can I go there and order like physical copies of like letterpress, cardboard stock, like copies of this music? Or is this all digital? No, no, you can order it. I don't think it's cardboard. It's not cardboard stock though. These are like traditional CDs. Oh, okay. Yep. It's it's CDs, CDs that they're putting out. I got you. Yep. Okay, cool. But I can get physicals. Oh yeah, man. Nice. Yep. Okay, Ryan, podcast shout out real quick. Do it. Uh, this dude that I met through the show named Josh Mills has a podcast called Rarified Hair. Or Air, I guess. Air is in like heirloom. H-E-I-R. Oh, yeah. Which is a neat concept. He interviews the children of famous people. And he hit me to an interview he did last year with Elmo Kirkwood. It's a great chat. They talk about all things pops. Some mm -hmm. great insight into what it was like growing up, you know, with Kurt Kirkwood as a parent and Chris Kirkwood as your uncle you can imagine yeah uh, talks about playing with the pops and also his solo projects and other bands he had before he joined you know his joined the meat puppets but get this Josh the host is one of the dudes behind the short-lived label blue man from Uranus who put out that most excellent Vita album oh which no we've way. talked about many times which yeah. de features Dezo Tom Tricoli George Hurley Others, of course, cover art by Kurt. That all comes up in the interview too. Elmo talks about being around those guys, you know, as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fun one. Okay, here's another one, Ryan. The podcast, Something to Do, D-U, which is devoted to all things replacements and hooskers and features our podcast pal Greg Pollard and his friend and former uh, bandmate Jude Miller. Greg is one of the hosts of the excellent Where It Went podcast. This is kind of a side project, I'd say. They don't release episodes on a regular basis. Uh, they've just come off a big hiatus, but they came back with a doozy. It's a full episode on Zen Arcade. Mm -hmm. And they have a great chat about it. I literally kept pausing the episode and playing songs off the album. Uh, so you know it's good when, when it makes you want to do that. They also mentioned their hardcore band from the early 2000s called One Up, has a new anthology out on Hell-Minded Records. It's called Many Miles Long, 2002 to th 2005. It came out last year on Hell-Minded. Uh, the cover is a nod to New Day Rising. Now, as I've mentioned before, I am not an expert on this type of hardcore, so don't quote me on this, Ryan. But I'd say... <laughs> 
but it's <laughs> I'd say it falls into the melodic hardcore side of things. It's straight edge, uh, but I was really getting off on it. Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds good. One up, check that out. Okay, one more quickly. As I was preparing for this episode, I stumbled across this podcast called The Pivotal Stories Project. They recently had on Steve Michener, who we'll be hearing about shortly. Steve was in Volcano Suns, but Uh also a bunch of other Boston bands like Dump Truck and Big Dipper. Mm -hmm. They talk a bit about some of those bands, but then they, what they mainly talk about is how Steve is retiring next year and moving overseas, he and his wife. And one of his goals as a retiree is to develop as a writer. He's decided he can't take his record collection with him, so he's writing about a record a day from his collection and posting it to a Facebook group he started called Steve's Random Record Collection Countdown (laughs) with a goal of getting through all of it by the time he retires. Wow. Yeah, he's a really good writer. Uh, He mentions on the podcast he's friends with Michael Azarad, who's helping him edit these, these posts. In some of the pieces, he talks about some of the people on the Volcano Suns uh, you know, on this record, getting him into certain bands. For example, he talks about uh, how he and Gary Whalick were listening to records together and how Wire's Chairs Missing was a total revelation to them. Yep. He goes, in, this is in the, in the blog, all of this research came in handy a few months later when Gary and I answered an ad in the Phoenix placed by ex-Burma drummer Peter Pe- Prescott looking for a guitarist and bassist to form a new band. We instantly bonded over our love for Pink Flag and Chairs Missing and proceeded to write dozens of songs together, all of them strongly informed by those two perfect first albums by Wire. Listening now, I'm still amazed by this record and it makes me want to grab a guitar and try to change the world. 154, Chairs Missing and Pink Flag. That's yeah. Those are the ultimate. Yeah, man. There you go. Cool, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. What do you have? My first spiel is three on the SS tree. Okay. And and these are three comps, Brant. So, if you may. Yeah, I'm ready. I just had a drink of water. I'm primed, man. Please, take us there. <clears throat> the comp zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ridiculous. Okay, so... I've talked about this label before on the show, Radiation Reissues, put out, I think, by Radiation Records out of Italy. It's hard to tell. I think they're related, though. And I knew that they were reissuing some of the old Posh Boy titles, mm. like the Beach Boulevard comp, mm-hmm. the you know, the 2LP version, uh, the excellent The Crowd record, A World Apart, the Simple Tones comp. Um, actually it was, I think it was originally, I have a date, but it was renamed California when radiation reissued it. But what I didn't know is in addition to reissuing posh boy titles, they're also reissuing records originally released by new underground records. One of the first DIY punk labels to come out of the South Bay scene in the early eighties and the label that put out three comps that have SST bands on it. Okay. So the first one, and you're going to remember this as soon as I say it, but the first one is called Life is Ugly, So Why Not Kill Yourself? Came out in 1982. It has Red Cross, China White, The Plebs, Saccharine Trust, Descendants, Minutemen, Hundred Flowers, Urinals, Mood of Defiance. It just keeps going and going. That's the first one. The second one, 
life is beautiful, so why not eat health foods, 1983. Um, here, Raymond Pettibone does the cover art. There's Shattered Faith, MIA, The Minutemen, Invisible Chains, Vox Pop, Power Trip, another a great comp from back then. These are all impossible to find, now being reissued. And then the third one, Life is Boring, So Why Not Steal This Record from 1983 as well. Again, Pettibone artwork, Minuteman, Shattered Faith, Harry Carey, Sin 34, Slivers are on it. These are all remastered, reissued with like double-sided liner insert, apparently. I haven't seen them yet. Slivers? But... Like apple sizer? Yeah, man. <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, I, but I mean like... These three comps are pretty darn hard to find. Didn't know they were being uh, reissued. If they're as good as the Posh Boy reissues, uh, and I'm sure they are, these will be great to snag at a reasonable price with remastered extra liners. So check those three SS Tree comps out. Mm -hmm. The other uh, spiel I wanted to lay on you, man, is I wanted to see whether you have watched that new Tony Hawk documentary. There's a new Tony Hawk documentary? Yeah, man, it's called Until the Wheels Fall Off, and it's on HBO, at least in Canada. It's probably on like a zillion other services elsewhere, but that's where we have it. You must watch that. Hold on. You hear that? That's your pen. Yeah. Clicking. He's writing. Till. He's writing and clicking. Yeah. Until the wheels fall off at Tony Hawk Doc. I am it's, so on that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's excellent. It's just excellent. And the soundtrack is killer too. And I mean, obviously they're going to have um, some great punk bands on there, some great replacements tracks. Mm. They also play during the show, of course, which like did everything for me. When you see people just like just sliding along the coping to a replacements tune yep. that, that does it all for me, but it's just great to see, you know, the history, um, the old guard who are still, you know, just shredding. Right. Yeah. They're putting, they're just slathering on the Ben Gay and still shredding. <laughs> just awesome. Did Stacy Peralta make it? Maybe. I don't know if he made it. He features prominently. Like he's, mm -hmm. he's one of the main interviewees yeah. in it, but Lance Mountain, yep. Caballero, Christian Hisoy, they're, they're all in it, man. The fucking Bones Brigade, man. Oh, dude, you got to see it almost alone just for the interviews with Rodney Mullen. He is so like Zen about skating oh, yeah. and, and emotional and talking about it. He's like a shaman. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like that in the bones brigade documentary too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you will totally be all over it and the soundtrack is killer. So check that doc out. Oh, I right, will. I love right. Tony's book. His book was great. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. So was Christian Hasoy's book too, by the way, if you're an old school skater out there and you haven't read that, do I it. Didn't even, didn't even know he had a book out. Yeah. It's good. Oh, no way. The footage is insane. Oh, it's, yeah, man. It's just insane. Love it. All right, man. That's all I got. Nice. Ready to get into some Volcano Suns? Yeah, man. Oh, let's do it. History lesson, part one. Okay, like I said, Volcano Suns, man, like I was digging it so hard this week and also realizing how big of a fan I am. And I kind of knew it. And I've kind of been collecting, you know, everything... It's funny, like I've been collecting everything Peter Prescott for like 20 years and then we've got him on the show and I'm listening to all of it this week and realizing how much like all of it is just great. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to get into it in more detail here. So I'm going to hit you with a bit of a history lesson, okay? Do it. All right. So obviously this episode is about Volcano Suns, 
based out of Boston, Massachusetts, formed by Peter Prescott after Mission of Burma disbanded. But we've got to go back further to start off. And you mentioned a lot of this in the interview, drips and drabs. I'm going to give you a bit more details here to set the stage. And the first place I want to go with Peter is the band The Malls, M-O-L-L-S. This is that weird, you know, post-punk, buzzcocksy type of band um, that he was in with a bunch of guys that went on to Someone in the Somebodies, a band afterwards, Tris, John, and Rob. And then he was also in the band with Bill Koff, who was on vocals. You can check out The Malls on the 2020 Rave Up Records comp, White Stains, the original recordings, 76 to 79. That's a great comp. You should check that out. You mentioned that in the interview. Yeah. But then, then we come to Mission of Burma. Now, I love Mission of Burma. And Mission of Burma are great. They're, they're not just legends, right? They're actually great. The, mm -hmm. music, the music just rules. It's also one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life when I saw them on um, one of their, like when they kind of, they came back and they did a reunion tour. It was just, just amazing, right? Um, but Mission of Burma also kind of casts a very long shadow. You know, people really dig Mission of Burma and, and they, they're so legendary. I kind of feel like people don't really dig into the offshoots, right? The subsequent bands after Burma, which is it's a shame. And that's why I really like getting into Volcano Suns. So that's another thing, you know, we're going to get into here about the post Burma stuff. But of course, Burma were formed in 79 in Boston. Their initial run lasted about five years. They were formed by Roger Miller on guitar, Clint Connolly on bass. Uh, Peter was on drums and then Martin Swope on sonic manipulations, which I love, you know, tape, <laughs> tape manipulations. I'll get into a bit more about these guys in a second here. Um, they were formed out of Miller and Conley's band, The Moving Parts. You can hear The Moving Parts on the 1992 comp on Arf Arf Records called Wrong Conclusion. You should check out that comp to kind of get, you know, if you listen to The Moles and The Moving Parts, those two kind of went in and formed Mission of Burma. Burma had legendary releases uh, on Ace of Hearts Records. They disbanded in 83, though, basically because of Roger Miller's worsening tinnitus miller and swope went on to focus on their bird songs of the mesozoic project which put out records on ace of hearts and cuneiform and we'll see roger miller later on in the podcast because he has some solo records on sst like 89's win instantly uh, 95's elemental guitar and 96 is the benevolent disruptive ray and roger has a ton of solo records um some are on new alliance when we get to Roger's records, we'll dig more deeply into that stuff, as well as things like Sproton Lair and others. After Burma broke up, Clint essentially retired from music, but Peter went on to form the Volcano Sons. Formed in 84, Peter is really the only constant member of Volcano Sons, originally formed with Gary Wylock and Steve Michener, as you mentioned, Brent. Gary and Steve were only in the band for about a year or so, and then they went to form on Big Dipper with members of another band uh, from that era, The Embarrassment. Big Dipper put out some great records on Homestead, but you can always just start with the Super Cluster anthology on Merge from 2008. Um, Steve was also in Dump Truck, as you mentioned, with those great albums like Diaz for Dump Truck, Positively Dump Truck, or For the Country. Check those out. And while I'm at it, if you want to check out The Embarrassment, check out their 
Heyday Comp, 1979 to 1983. It's a double disc on Bar None from 1995. After Wylick and Michener left, Peter recruited Jeff Weingart on bass and John Williams on guitar. This is the version of the band that put out 85's The Bright Orange Years on Homestead, but you should really get the 2009 reissue on Merge that has nine bonus tracks remastered by future Volcano Suns member Bob Weston. This same lineup was together for 1986's All Night Lotus Party, also on Homestead, and also just as excellent as the Bright Orange Years. Like, there's really not a bad Volcano Suns record. I'll get into, like, my fave in a bit here. But here again, with All Night Lotus Party, you should really get the 2009 re-release on Merge. Has 10 bonus tracks, also remastered by Bob Weston. Just killer. In 87, uh, Bob Weston then joins on bass, and then Chuck Hahn joins on guitar. Hahn is from the Boston band Sorry, where he played bass, but he's joining on guitar in Volcano Suns. Uh, uh, you said that wrong. Oh, what did I say? Sorry. What did I say? It, you have to say it like that. We're Canadian. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I got to be apologetic when I mention the band name. I got you, I got you. Um, sorry released the album's Imaginary Friend on Radio Beat from 84. Killer... Hardcore post-punk melodic stuff, awesome. Yeah. And then the way it is on Homestead in 86 with an excellent, speaking of Wire, an excellent cover of X-Line Tamer on that record. Now, Sori has ties with Burma from way back, like Roger even guested on the Imaginary Friend album. And this is the lineup that produced a final album for Homestead, the amazing and my favorite one, Bumper Crop from 1987. That's my favorite Volcano Suns record, hands down. But they're all great. They're all great. And that leads us then to this album, Farst, with the same lineup. But before we get into that and a bit more about some of these members, let's take a quick sidestep into The Din. Dread Fool and The Din, to be exact. And I'm talking now about Dan Ireton, otherwise known as Dread Fool. He had previously enlisted Burma, as his backing band, The Din, in 1982 and produced the single Songs in Heat on Religious Records from 1982. Um, and Burma apparently performed as The Din after they dissolved even, but without Roger in the band. I think about that time, they actually would have also recruited Kenny Chambers from The Moving Targets, who played with The Din from 83 to 88. But when Volcano Suns emerged, uh, Dread Fool recruited the Volcano Suns to be the new DIN starting in 1984. And they produced two excellent, excellent LPs. Um, 1985's Eat My Dust and Cleanse My Soul on Homestead. And I've already, I've probably listed like 10 just killer Homestead oh, records man. I, by now. I was going to say, like, I've listened to a lot of this stuff this week too, like, the, all the Volcano Suns leading up to this, the so yeah. Sorry, I listened to all that, and the the Dread Fool, I was just soaking in all of it, and I, we have to do Homestead next, like it's official. That's yeah. going to be our next podcast. I we almost we almost might have to like put this one on hiatus right now. <laughs> Isn't there? There's just amazing shit on yeah. Homestead, right? It's just yeah. amazing. But let's not forget about uh, 1988's Take Off Your Skin. Dreadful and the Din record on PVC Records, also killer. And as I mentioned, you know, this version of the Din had Kenny Chambers in it. And they kind of off and on, I guess, um, over the years and different incarnations of the Din, um, even one including Thurston Moore later on. Now, 
the Volcano Suns on the podcast, we will also eventually get to cover SST 257, 1989's The Thing of Beauty, where David Kleiler from Sorry, 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 yeah, David Kleiler from Sorry replaced Chuck Hahn, and, and that same lineup then produced the final LP, Career and Rock, 1991, on Quarter Stick, produced by Steve Albini. That is an insanely killer record. Check out, like, if you've never heard the Volcano Suns record, Career and Rock, go listen to the song Total Eclipse and just lose yourself. It's amazing. Volcano Suns also put out, though, the uh, the Sea Cruise single on Homestead and the Blue Rib single on Quarter Stick. Now, and in 93, the Volcano Suns break up. Bob Weston, of course, is, is now uh, a member of Shellac. He also played in Crush. Don't forget about the band Crush with Gary Wylak. Crush also includes Ron Ward from $5 Priest Brandt. Mm. Uh, if you remember raising yep. them a number of episodes back. Also check out Bob's band Martha's Vineyard Fairies. Also good. But Bob is probably these days most well-known other than Shellac as a producer and engineer. And I <laughs> this week too, I kind of feel like 25% of what I listen to all the time has got something Bob Weston on it. <laughs> he's either playing on it or he's recorded it or produced it, whether it's Polvo or Sebado or whatever. It just goes forever and forever and just amazing stuff. He by does Bob a lot Weston. of remastering too, hey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's he's just awesome at it. Yeah. Um, now, in 1994, Peter then formed Customized. Again, like Peter is, he's still going, man. Like, you know, Burma ends... Volcano Suns. Volcano Suns ends. Customized. Yep. Bob Moses on bass. Ed Yazigian on guitar. Kirk Davis from Bullet LaVolta on drums. Three excellent albums on Matador, all produced by Bob Weston. The Mystery of, The Battle for Space, and At the Vanishing Point, where Malcolm Travis from Human Sexual Response, The Zulus, and No Man join on drums. Customized also had a couple of singles. Demonstrates your hi-fi. And also, The Day I Had Some Fun, 7-inch. Um, and don't forget, of course, Peter moved out from behind the kit in Customized. And then a miracle happened, and Burma reformed with Bob Weston filling in for Swope. You can see all of this in the amazing film, Not a Photograph, The Mission of Burma Story. And I watched that documentary again this week, yeah. and it's it's been a while since I watched it. But man, like what a it's a true... Truly a miracle that Burma reformed and they put out four amazing albums yeah, like 20 years, 20 years later, right? 2004's On Off On, 2006's The Obliterati, that's my favorite of the, the yeah. last four, yeah. 2009 The Sound, The Speed, The Light, and 2012's Unsound. They're all great albums that obliterati the first song on there i think it's called twice twice is like yeah. one of their best songs it's so good yeah. and and here I, i'm gonna maybe say this a few times but i mean like you know what defines that song for me peter's drumming yeah yeah it's his, good. He, he's not he's not a flashy jazzy drummer he's a basher but it's like a really awesome basher. He plays to the song you know yeah, yeah. Just, I, I own the. I have the DVD of that. I don't think I've watched it since I got it. Like when it came out, I need to rewatch that. The, oh, it's a the documentary. Yeah, it's great. It just you know makes you really appreciate it. What happened there to like bring everyone back together after all those years? Like Clint, basically, 
he didn't pick up a base like yeah. since Burma disbanded and he came back and then you know he put out two albums uh, with uh, Consonant. It's like two it reminds me of Derek Bostrom rejoining the Meat Puppets. Like he didn't drum. The, I think he stopped playing drums the day he left the band. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I want to mention these Consonant albums though. You should check out 2002's self-titled and then 2003's Love and Affliction, both on Fenway Records. Miller has a ton, a ton, a ton of solo albums and side projects. Trinary System, just to name one. Um, while you're at it too, in addition to that Burma documentary, there's obviously the Mission of Burma chapter in Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. I should have mentioned that earlier and make sure to check that one out. And then finally, Peter has of course been busy <laughs> since customized with his mini beast project, which I also love. I've, I've ordered all of his stuff off of his band camp. There's a uh, 2012's look, don't look 2016's free will 2019's, uh, the two records isms volume gold volume silver. And then I just last week got in the mail from Peter, the new disc on ice. Listen to it uh, a couple of times this week just killer um and again like i love it all and i I really really got to appreciate it this week yeah that mini beast is really good like some kraut rock vibes you know a bit of butthole surfers almost going on dub dub yeah pill yeah yeah man it's really good oh yeah crazy ass rhythm section too Mm -hmm. so that's all i got man that's your history lesson all right i feel like i'm totally up to speed (laughs) maybe we should throw it over to peter let's do it all right we're joined on the podcast today by peter prescott peter thanks for being on the show no problem okay before we get into this first record i want to go all the way back and just uh get into a little bit of your personal history are you from boston originally i'm from massachusetts i was like in a suburb about an hour out of boston yeah started going up there to see bands i suppose you know, in a slightly pre-punk era, but they were punk rock bands. Like who? DMZ. Oh, so local bands. There were local bands, but really fast. The Dead Boys, the Talking Heads Mm. uh, started playing at pretty small places. They played Uh, Boston a lot. I actually just read uh, Chris's book, and it seemed like, you know, Boston was a, a destination for, well, for it was, indie bands. It was relatively easy to get to. Well, it seems like there was people, you know, that would come out for stuff like that, for sure. I know, like, the Modern Lovers, I remember reading that that, that was a place they played a lot, and the Velvets. The Real Kids. Yep, the Real Kids, yeah. Uh, oh, La Peste was an amazing uh, local three-piece band. Kind of somewhere between Wire and the Ramones. Ah. DMZ was like, you know, the Stooges on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were there were some really strong local bands, but like I say, it it wasn't long before bands started coming from elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Willie Alexander? I'm just th- I'm thinking of of <laughs> as soon as you said the the real kids, I started thinking about that live at the rat comp. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh when did you start playing drums? I think you know. I think I went through the other instruments, the other cool instruments, uh, guitar and and bass, and couldn't couldn't play them very well. But I I was good at hitting things, so I you know I went straight to the drums. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was probably 12, 13. Okay. Yeah. Was the Malls kind of your first serious band? Yeah, it, it was the first the first original band I played in. They were they were pretty fucking original too. <laughs> I mean, they were like it, it isn't like I started with a straight a straight punk rock band. I yeah. sort of started with them, you know. Um, but it was a good education. It was like a, a a fun thing, and you know, sort of whetted my appetite to to keep looking around for people in Boston. Yeah, I have the the comp that came out a few years ago, the White Stains comp, and it's, you know, it's like ranges from Buzzcocks style punk rock to weird art funk. Very much, yeah. (laughs) No, I I thought they were, you know, pretty ambitious in their way, you know. Yeah. Uh, Any memorable gigs stand out, you know, like bands that you would have played with with Uh, the Malls? I know there was a couple others, but the one I remember most is we played with the, uh, the Suicide Commandos and uh, Erubu. Oh, yeah. That would have been a perfect fit, I think. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. It was. So that was a blast. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so after the malls, there's Burma, obviously. Now, when that project, uh, you know, decides to, to call call time, did you, you knew right away you wanted to do another band? To keep playing music? I did. I think even more than those guys, I sort of wanted to return to a band format. And there was something I really liked about the three, the triangular three-piece thing that seemed to work just right. And uh, yeah, so I first hooked up with a couple of guys that went on to play in Big Dipper, Mm -hmm. Gary and Steve. I'm not sure how we how long we played as the Volcano Sons. Maybe year and a half, two years, something like that. Well, so it was a it was a fair amount of time. It for it seemed like from what I had read that they were kind of in and out super fast. Not no, I I had to have been at least a year, hmm. at least. And then uh, John Williams joined, kind of second guitar, and also did sound for us sometimes. And then Gary and Steve split. John stayed, and we got uh, Jeff Wigan on bass. Okay, um, and that was the band that made the, the first, first two. two yeah, yeah. Did you name the band? Yeah, I think it was collective. You know, like people do, they get stoned and put two <laughs> words together. You know, and uh, I think we kept doing that until we went. Yeah, that's good. Let's uh-huh. go with that. Okay, so later on, uh, you know, in Customized and, you know, what you're doing now, you were up front. Were, did you know at this time you wanted to stay on drums or was there any thought of, like, you not playing drums when you were starting your in the In the Volcano Sons? Yeah, when you were starting it. Um, n- no, for, for some reason, all throughout the Volcano Sons, I was absolutely comfortable singing and playing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it didn't, it not only didn't it bother me, but when I, when there were songs where I didn't sing, I actually felt like all I'm doing is playing drums now, you know? So I got, I got really used to doing that specific thing. Just backing up a little bit. If this is true, I read that you had actually auditioned for a band called Disneyland and that's where Gary and Steve came into the picture. I think they had... I don't think it was called Disneyland, but, hmm. you know, I mean, <laughs> that was like 
right. 40 years ago. I'm just, I can be cloudy sometimes, but I don't remember Disneyland, but they may have had a band kind of going before before we got together. That uh, I think that's possible. And it, who knows, it might have been called that. Do you know how you knew Jeff and John or how you, you found them? I think John saw us play shows and liked us. And so, yeah, we did a few shows with him as sort of a quasi fourth member. Right. Uh, he lived in Vermont, ended up being a really amazing guitar player, I thought. And he was an engineer, so he had a good sort of ear for sound and stuff. When those guys cut out, you know, I just said to him, do you want do you want to try to find a bass player? And he said, yeah. And Jeff came actually from where I live now, Providence, Rhode Island. I can't, I, we might have put an ad up, mm -hmm. you know, in the local paper or something like that. But yeah, we pretty, we knew pretty much when he came down. It's like, I don't think he even had a bass at the time. And, we, and he played the bass that was there and we we're like, yeah, you're in. <laughs> All right. Um, you obviously wrote in Burma, but way more in Volcano Suns. Was that kind of out of necessity or was that something that you you knew you wanted you know that that you had these songs and this was going to be kind of your band um i didn't it's weird i've never wanted bands to be my band mm -hmm. <laughs> i feel really un uncomfortable about that i don't i don't feel like i'm that sort of musician i i i really like some sort of equalization and i would say that i wanted to write i well, like i sort of exploded out of the gate because Clinton Roger and Burma kind of I, I they were very helpful in in helping me figure out how to do it. And so once they helped get me going, then I didn't have a place to do it. So so once I did, yeah. stuff kind of poured out. But the the other people that played with me at any given point in the Volcano Suns added immense amounts of stuff to it. Mm -hmm. Um Sometimes they sometimes the there was co-writing, but even when there wasn't, even when I brought in a song, what they added was always theirs. How did the project Dreadful and the Din come in? It obviously that was more like of a side, more of a side project. It seems like you know I just recently connected with with Dan, and uh, he sent me some stuff he had done in the past few years, which I thought was amazing. The way it came about then, um, a mutual friend, we we knew he and his wife, Dan and his wife, and a mutual friend for Dan's birthday wanted to buy him studio time and pay for a, a single because he liked what he did. Right. <laughs> and we were all friends. And, and so the intermediary guy said do you guys want to play play on it maybe you could play different instruments or something but that's how it happened and um i always forget about it but it's pretty cool shit i'm happy we did that single mm -hmm. you know and then later the the volcano sons did sort of stepped in to be his backup band on a couple of full length right records too yeah uh, how did you end up do you know getting connected with homestead the main guy who signed people there was Gerard Cosloy. Right, yeah. Who went on to do Matador records. When he was 
13 and 14, he had a, a, a great fanzine, incredibly sarcastic fanzine called Conflict. And um, he used to uh, sell it at, at shows and he, we used to sneak him into Burma shows and, and stuff. And so we were friends with him when he was very young. Geez, he couldn't he couldn't have been 20 when he started working at Homestead, but that was the connection. I think he he gave he signed a lot of uh, Boston stuff while he was there. Yeah. Um, And we happened to be one of them. You know, another Boston band on Homestead, since you mentioned it, that uh, played a part in Volcano Suns kind of is uh, the band Sorry, because as we move into bumper crop, we see chuck hahn i'm assuming that's how you knew him or from just from yes. the scene or whatever well they they hung out with gerard too and and they were more gerard's age hmm. i mean i think they were still in high school and they opened some shows for burma uh, yeah. and they were always for a for a young guy band they were always a little bit smarter and and i i always dug them i thought they were um sort of underrated yeah and Bob, how did you know Bob? Bob came out of the blue. Um, when John and Jeff left abruptly, I think we played a, a show, maybe with a government issue in, in Washington, D.C. We're coming home, and those guys go like, we quit. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. <laughs> and... and uh, for some reason, I don't know why, I think it was because I was sort of, again, in full throttle. I was, like, writing and, and digging it a lot. I like the sound. I like the three-piece thing. And so I said, ah, fuck it, I'll see if I can find some people again. So I knew Chuck, asked him. He was the bass player in Sorry. Right. But um, knew exactly what to do. Uh, I think maybe the second person we tried out was bob and uh again he he just knew exactly what to do so uh that started a friendship which actually continues till now so you hit the ground running all over again yeah i i yeah i mean that's that's sort of what i i mean that's what you do when you're young (laughs) you're too stupid to know any better you know so yeah i that is the way it worked yeah. You were you really wanting to tour hard in those days? Were you were you touring a lot with Volcano Suns? Um, I think right after those guys joined, we went on tour for six weeks. I mean, we like we didn't <laughs> we didn't even really know each other that well, but we made this record really fast. Yeah, and I think most of the years after that, we were always on tour at least you know, a couple months out of every year. It wasn't like, wasn't forever like Black Flag would do or something, but, you know, we toured a lot. Yep. Do you know how the move from Homestead to SST happened? That was, um, the best way to put it is that, like, Dinosaur, Sonic Youth, seems like a couple other bands had, had moved from Homestead to SST. Yeah. And SST, at the time was viewed as the label to be on. I think we, you know, we sort of might, we might've hooked up with people from the label at a, at a gig out there. And they, 
we might have mentioned something about it and and they expressed interest in retrospect i don't i don't i'm not sure if it was the best thing for us to do but it had worked out so well for Husker do meat puppets okay. you know i mean it was like it was where like the amazing indie rock bands were at the time yeah. and it seemed almost stupid not to do that <laughs> Tell me about Fort Apache South and Sean Slade. Well, okay, there was a Fort Apache North that ended up recording like half of the hit selling uh, like alternative rock albums in the 90s. Right. But this was before that. And this was when they had a place that was, it wasn't South Boston, but it was sort of a, it was an area that had not been gentrified yet. It was, you know, like some broken down buildings and um, even the building they were in, you you would never know there was a, you know, a studio in it. Right. Uh, but that's where people put them because they were cheap, you know, and it was rapidly becoming a really good place to, um, to record records. And we had recorded, I think that we started there with um, Bumper Crop. Mm-hmm. And that had worked out so well. Paul Coldery was uh, involved in it a bit, but it was mostly Sean, who was a blast. He was so much fun uh, to do stuff with. And uh, I th- like, as far as the sound of each of those records, the the bumper crop, the, the two on SST were the ones that we did with Sean. And I think that um, bumper crop, I love the way it sounds. The other two have some cool moments, but it was an oddly um, not not because of him. I would emphasize that. I think um, Chuck was kind of on farce, but was kind of leaving. David Clyler was coming on board. Uh, it it wasn't the most consistent period, and I think those records kind of sound like that a little mm. bit. They say they sound like you know like. Um, I was telling somebody the other night that the really cool records that were coming out on, on SST sometimes tended to sound like one long song, you know, because they, they were such a homogenous, like black flag, who's going do. Um, and Minutemen songs are uh, incredibly um, detailed and, and concise. And yet they have this overriding sound. That's just, there i think we did not have that as as much and and it hurt it it like that uh dinosaur jr same thing you know those those records are monolithic they they're just this sort of wall of sound with a personality speaking inside of it and i thought that was a really effective thing ironically i i don't think we did that as as much as they did hmm these on this record because of like you say the line the lineup was in flux or do you mean across, that's part across of the, the reason across all of it no i i think the um we made six records total mm-hmm. the first two i thought had whatever i'm talking about that quality of sort of you know um sort of what makes a good indie rock record just a certain uh, great songs, but a certain homogenization of sound, a certain assault of sound. I think that um, Bumper Crop had that. 
again, I think the, the, the two afterwards that happened to be on SST, I don't think it was because they were on SST, but we happened to be there. And I think we were sort of in flux and unsure of what we wanted to sound like. And, uh, and this was at a time when bands were just like roaring out of the gate with a sound. Yeah. You know, I understand what you're saying. I respectfully disagree about uh, this album. I think it's a very cohesive album and definitely has a sound. And I, I think stylistically, the sound is great. It sounds like it was recorded relatively, you know, live in the studio. They always were. Well, that that's cool. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm always willing to be argued out of my position, but it's it's sort of the way, yeah, it, that's sort of become cemented in my head that way. Yeah. Yeah, because the the last one we did, uh, we did on Touch and Go. I know those are the sort of like three indie rock labels. <laughs> we like sample, sampled and destroyed them all. Uh, but... The cool thing about the um, Touch and Go record is Steve Albini recorded it and he gave it exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Sort of an overall feel, you know, that, that um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny how an outsider will hear hear something different than I do because I don't even know anymore, but that's my memory of Forrest, you know, that it has a, a certain disjointed Quality. Yeah, well, as an artist, you like you say, um, you kind of decide these things, and it just becomes okay. your your <laughs> general exactly. uh, perception or how how you remember things, right? So, I'm certainly not going to be objective about <laughs> it. It's sort of a, an impression. You know? Yeah. Well, okay. So, I want to ask you about some of these tracks. So, it sounds like you're probably not the kind of artist that revisits your own material too often. So, I might be really. Uh, <laughs> really stretching the limits of your your memory here but right. yeah probably <laughs> okay so the first song is can i have the key now this is one of yours and we've got bob grant pitching in on some lyrics who's bob it, it probably is bob weston yeah it's uh the the liner notes say bob grant so maybe that maybe bob that, grant yeah bob grant was <laughs> A guy that I worked with at a copy store. <laughs> he probably gave me like a line or two. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Brother Superior, one of yours. Almost like a, you know, a 60s vibe. The the sitar on that one, it almost makes it yeah. sound like a 12 string, really. Yeah, actually, like, now that I think of the cover, the words... The basic sound, we were probably trying to get something lysergic in into the mix. We were probably trying to get some a psychedelic sort of a mood to seep into it all. Uh, now that I'm remembering these things. Yeah, well, I, I'd say if if that was the goal, I I, I think you, you probably hit on that for sure. Except for maybe the next one, Belly Full of Lead. That's uh, one of yours and, and Chuck. Is that you on vocals for that one? It is. Yeah, it is. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. I was sort of acting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we 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 had samples in there, which I I use some variation on samples an awful lot now, mm -hmm. and did it 
not constantly, but but somewhat in the volcano suns. Eventually, Bob had like basically a tape recorder that had random stuff on it that he just turned on and off with his foot. So it was a uh, you know something someone had to tune up or or we wanted to take a break for thirty seconds. You know, we filled it with noise. Right uh, now, on this record, we have Mick Maldonado doing uh, credited with sampling. Who's Mick? He's a guy that uh, I lived with at the time. He did a Volcano Sons video. For one of these songs? No, for an for an older song, White Elephant. It might be on YouTube. You know, everything seems to be. I think he, he might have played some kind of sampler or keyboard on, on a few things on there. He might have actually done it on Thing of Beauty, too. The drum sound on Belly Full of Lead, it, I'm, su- I'm assuming this was just, you know, done in the studio or something, but it sound, it almost sounds like a Lindrum or something. That's funny. Yeah, it does. So I, <laughs> I, I think, you know, like I said, Sean was an easy guy to work with. And I think we were all, always kind of like, you know, how can we screw with this a little bit? We, we didn't like to do anything in a straightforward way. So, uh, Meat and Potatoes. It got me thinking like about, are you primarily writing these songs on guitar when you're writing them or, and then showing them to the guys? Are you, you know, demoing them? How, how, what's that process? I think more often I, I wrote them when there was, you know, pitch changes or, or actual arrangements on bass. I think I, you know, at the time I really couldn't even pretend playing guitar. And so, and so when it, to get an idea across, it, it was usually on bass to play drums and sing it at the same time. Do you have to write differently to do that as a drummer? It wasn't that I, it wasn't that I had to, I just did because that's what, you know, it's like I was the singer by default. So I, I got used to doing it that way. It, it, after a while, it didn't even become a, um, wasn't even anything anyone thought about, you know, I, I tended to do it more often, but people, the other people in the band did sing too. Yeah. Was it a thing like that became attached to the band? Like I'm assuming a lot of press mentioned it because it's kind of unique, right? Well, it is, but yeah, for better or worse. Yes. I mean, the, the, it's, it's hard. I think there's, there's something distracting about a drummer singing lead, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, you know, again, you do what you do, you know, and you, you hope, you hope it works. But it probably wasn't my preference, and that's why, that's one reason I don't do it right now. Uh, The next song is A Definite Maybe, that's written by you and Bob. I'm not sure which songs they play on, because I don't think it specifies, but we have uh, some extra guitars from Gary, and then Michael Kudeny? Kadahi. Kadahi. Who was in Christmas, and he was in the Combustible Edison band in the 90s amazing guy like really cool songwriter so there's an electric sitar on something in there and he either he or gary played that i'm not i'm not sure yeah that's a cool one that was mostly bobs i might have added like a couple of small pieces yeah i even hear some percussion on that one i'm pretty sure i hear a guero some Guero action. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Oh my God. That's pretty amazing. Good year. Obviously you had a bit of extra time in the studio and probably some 
percussion kicking around, you have to make use of it, right? Totally. Where the Rex go is is one of yours. I'm assuming this is one of the ones with Trisha Matthews on violin. God, you know that one I am blanking on. Yeah. I know the song, but like I don't remember. I just don't remember much about that. Do you know who Trisha Matthews is? She was Bob's Bob Weston's girlfriend at the time. Okay, here's an interesting one: "Nature and Me," uh, written by you, Gary, and Steve. An earlier song. Obviously, it's it's on the merge reissue, a live version of, uh, I think, the Bright Orange Years. Why did it not get recorded at the time? It's such yeah, a rock. Sometimes songs just get left behind, you know. And and I think I think we still played it at the time, so we said, oh, let's put it on. But it was another thing that gave, that added to the disjointed quality because here's a song that's like, you know, played by other people written by other people two years before or whatever. Right. So, yeah, that's that's how it ended up in there because I th- think we're still playing it. Flipping it over, Laugh Riot, written by you and Julie Cantor. Who's Julie? Julie was my girlfriend at the time. Okay. Yeah, that was sort of... Uh, every now and then we did these sort of like big rock songs that like like that were almost a, a personal joke. But uh, that's that sort of falls into that category. The next one is Slope and Hood. I, I really hope you can remember writing that song because I just really want to know what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite titles that I've ever come up with, I think. It's a good um, one. <laughs> sort of a, like a perverse Robin Hood, I guess. Like, a, like an evil Robin Hood that, like, you know, steals from the good and gives to the bad or something. <laughs> I think that's what the general idea was. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, with the maniacal laugh, laughing and uh, the creepy <laughs> vibe of the song, I think that comes out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next one's Commune. It, it kind of sounds like you're singing that one from experience, maybe, Peter. Um, you know, I, I I actually wasn't because I knew tons of people that, that lived with, you know, eight roommates in a loft or something. Right. Um, I did not. I always lived with like one roommate or my girlfriend at the time. Um, but the that that's the song from that record that we played almost every set, mm-hmm. like until we were done. I it, it, that's the one. That's my favorite song from that record. Other people's too was it like a, a fan favorite? Do you think it seemed to be? It, it, I mean, that's why it it always ended up in a set when we, you know, pulled stuff off that record. Yep. Okay. Uh, What's happening to me? Now, this one's written by you, Chuck, and Bob, which is rare for the record. Do you recall, like, would it have just been written at practice maybe or something? Um, Yeah, it might have been, it might have come out of a jam. And personally, I always like songs that do that. And it it sort of had a, um, you know, sort of a quasi Hendrix kind of lurch to it. You know, I, I, nice messy rhythm and and it was a cool guitar riff that that, that's a song i like a lot too uh the next one is shriny uh so there's the psychedelic jam for sure oh totally Uh, i'm assuming this is bob on trumpet on this one it is and a guy named chris george played sitar Mm -hmm, yeah who's chris chris lives in new york now he he played in an early Boston punk band called Boys Life, 
he had some sort of he had some indie rock bands in the 90s too mm-hmm. um amazing bass player and and actually quite a good sitar player too mm-hmm. yeah there's sitar all over this record obviously it was you know you know, something you wanted to to throw in in the mix on this one did, yep. did you do it live did he ever get on stage with you do you, do you think i think we tried it once he it wasn't it wasn't electric i think the one he had was not and it was almost impossible to get it above the din yeah i bet it, yeah it would have been nice okay and then we end the record with neck of rubber and it's credit on the record it says plus a bunch of people yelling so i'm gonna say that the, that's the one with a bunch of people yelling in it maybe yeah, <laughs> yeah. very much so um again i you know i don't think we played that a ton live but it was, you know, that was the way we sounded at the time. A, a lot of people yelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it was a pretty pretty accurate description, even when it was just us, you know. Yeah. Did you play a lot locally? Like, how often do you think you would play in Boston a year? Probably at least three or four times a month. Oh, there really? Were lots, yeah. There were lots of places to play, say, in between Maine and New York City. Yeah. It's a good hub city for sure, hey? Boston. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's in between a lot of stuff. Mostly headlining shows? Yeah, but I don't think we ever had a problem opening for for someone. And because we had Homestead and SST connections, you know, there was a lot of playing with those bands that were on, on those labels. Yeah. Uh, the cover art, Eleanor Ramsey, just a friend of the band, I'm assuming. Yeah, um wife of of mick maldonado oh okay um yeah i i sort of approve of the insane design of it i love it i I mean it's just it i i think um you know this this lsd uh thing crossed with some kind of dadaist uh mindset i think what that's what the cover art was about that's what a lot of the sound of it was about Mm -hmm. i think Yep, that comes through for sure. Even this photo of Bob's for sure of the band with the with the <laughs> yeah. masks. Yeah, yeah. it's def- like see, we're I you're making the case for this being a co- a cohesive well, album in real time here. <laughs> I well, you know, it's a funny thing. I I think maybe maybe the cohesive stuff I'm not so aware of, but I think all those visual things and the sound things. Um, do grow out of this idea that the, we we all thought like playing in a rock band is like one of the most ridiculous things a person can do. So it's funny. Yeah. You know, yeah. like my favorite rock bands in general are are pretty funny from the Sex Pistols to Jesus Lizard to geez, I don't know. Every everything that's great, there seems to be some seed of humor or absurdity about it. To me, it definitely comes through on this record, you know, Slope and Hood and Laugh Riot and Belly Full of Lead and, <laughs> you know, Commune. Like, there's, you're not afraid to show your sense of humor for sure on this right. record. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Thomas Berger quote, I'm assuming that's you, maybe. Or, or we're yeah. a fan from one of his novels, you, maybe. Are you familiar with Thomas Berger? I, I, well, I know who he is. His, his novels seem to have a similar sort of mindset anyway. So, uh, you know, touch of absurdity about mm-hmm. the worldview. Yeah, well, you mentioned Dada, right? Like, 
that artistic aesthetic for sure is the absurdity of, of it all. I yeah. Think. Let's talk about what you're doing now. So by the time this record airs, your new mini beast album will be out and I, yeah. I've heard it. It sounds great. Like definite, you know, uh, you say that, you know, you talk about the sampling. It's just a, all the records are, are good. The mini beast records. This one is just kind of, I think furthers that kind of, there's definitely some jamming going on. I bet you really can, uh, extend this stuff live well there was always especially when it was a band rather than me making a record in a bedroom right uh the the first two were me making a record in a bedroom but uh i played with a couple of different different drummers who were all insanely good and because i was a drummer this group is kind of about rhythm i just didn't want to be the, the drummer anymore so I ran into a guy that actually only lived a few towns away from me who was just a monster player without being stupid about it, without being an over player. He, he, he sort of um, jived right away with the kind of band I wanted it to be. Maybe a year before the pandemic started, we got our present bass player and when those three pieces were together is when I thought it totally hit its stride. So obviously for several months during the pandemic, we had to stop operations like everybody did, but pretty quickly within six months, I guess we started playing with the mask. It was like shower curtains between us. Right. Um, and before we play any songs, we tend to just play for a half an hour to 45 minutes anyway. Mm -hmm. And we usually record it. So that's where about half of this material came from. And then once you get a great version of it, then you have to learn how to play it half as long. <laughs> <laughs> because most of these songs started off so long, you wouldn't believe it. But we, we figured out between playing them shorter and actually editing them and cutting them down shorter, we got them down to the size we wanted them to. Of course, they're all long anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> because we sort of want to let them go where they want to go. For sure. Um, yeah. Then there was a ton of, you know, post-production stuff that we did afterwards to tighten them up even more into song structures, I guess. But it's definitely the the record where we figured out how to make us sound like we wanted to. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned you, you yourself recording at home that it's definitely sounds like a band, like, you know, you've established a full-time rhythm section and, and without a doubt, they are raging on it, you know? And I think it, it was also nice to jam the bass up. So there's the, the rhythm section is almost, almost the prevalent thing. <laughs> You know, we, which I love. I, I I sort of get off on sitting in the background and and screwing around with what's going on, but but them pulling it is really fun. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely seems more about in a lot on a lot of the songs, just establishing that groove, and you're just adding color on top of it. I guess that's that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you do the sampling live as well? 
like do you present present the sampling live well what i've got i've got a guitar amp and i've got a keyboard amp through the keyboard amp goes through there's kind of a theremin thing there's a box that a company called critter and guitari made they still make um kind of these custom little keyboards and stuff but this box was the best thing they made because you can just take from any source with a, a sort of a boom mic thing and um, build up, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes or 15 minutes worth of stuff. And then you can just cycle through them live. So the combination of the theremin thing, this box, a keyboard, an 80s like cheese ball keyboard that's really sounds like it's from the 80s. Uh, so those things all go through one mixer and into a mic. And I'm going back and forth between guitar and that mm -hmm. and singing. Another recent project, I'm assuming this was like a lockdown project or whatever, the horror and suspense themes for the whole family. Yeah. It, it's awesome. Is that, is that something you still do a lot of at home is just make music for um, just for yourself lately i haven't had the chance but yeah i love i love that kind of stuff and i also i buy tons of soundtracks more recently there's been a lot of horror reissues and things like mm -hmm. that so it was yep. kind of on my mind yep. and um i just love uh sound design and and soundtracks in general so uh yeah i'll probably do more volumes of that yeah try to make it a yearly event <laughs> All right. So, uh, obviously as an artist, you're always moving forward and stuff. Um, uh, you know, we've got the, the old paint live album and, you know, the merge reissues and stuff, the Bandcamp page for Volcano Suns, any, any Volcano Suns action or Burma action, anything like that coming our way that you're, that you know of, did you write your memoirs while you were on lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a it's a drag, but I I would say no. I I think during Burma's second run, the Suns played a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, and and it was a blast. It's like everyone lives in different cities. Have, they have families. They have children. To to hold together this band is is a monumental <laughs> feat. And then these guys live right around here, right. you know. Yeah. So. Um, and I, I, I'm sort of at least at this moment out of drum mode. That's mm -hmm. another issue. Yep. I haven't, I haven't even really played for a couple of years. Um, I do, I do still have a drum kit, but um, yeah. So that seems highly unlikely. Yeah. Okay. Where can people buy the Mini Beast album? Are are there going to be shows? Um, where where sh should people go to find you? Well, I, I hope we're on tour in the fall. That's what we're, we're aiming to do. But you can always find any of our merch or records on Bandcamp. That's the easy place to do it. Okay. Awesome. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really do appreciate it. No problem. Right on, man. Again, so great to have Peter on the show and kind of give it to us from the you know, someone who was there, especially for this Farst record, which I mentioned at the end of the last episode, it is one of those ones where 20 plus years ago, 
I was just flipping through the bins. It was cheap. I didn't know about Volcano Suns. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, I really, really didn't. This is the first record I bought by them, but I bought it because it had SST on the back. Yeah. Like, that was it. It was cheap. It was in the bins. SST, give it a try. The rest is history. Yeah. I read a, you know, I read some reviews of this record this week, and I'm talking like, you know, the usual. Nothing. I couldn't find anything from, you know, zines or whatever from back in the day, but this is like all music, trouser press. They kind of concurred with what Peter is saying that, you know. They, they call it uneven. Uneven. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that it's sandwiched between, and all of this stuff was written, you know, after the band had split up. So this this is looking back at, at their entire discography, right? Yeah. So they're, I think it had to do a little bit with the fact that it's between Bumper Crop and Thing of Beauty. Is that the next one? Yep. The double LP. Yeah. Uh, those albums are really highly regarded, I would mm-hmm. say. Like, considered their, two of their best. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't think that Farst is a bad record. It's a great record. Yeah. Some, of my, some of my favorite songs are on here, but it's not my favorite Volcano Suns. Bumper Crop is. Thing of Beauty is insane. And, and man, Career and Rock. Oh, when you put when you put Albini at the controls for Volcano Suns, forget about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Thing of Beauty, man. We won't have to wait too long. I think it's in the 250s. We'll get to it this year, I hope. Yeah. A double LP, too. We don't see that many of those. No. Uh, I like, you know, the point he was making kind of relates to, to what we're talking about, you know, about SST bands having a, a complete and cohesive sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like he told me flat out before the interview that he rates the two SST records as possibly their weakest or his least favorite of the six studio records. Hmm. Even Thing of Beauty, hey? Yeah. Well, maybe he was specifically thinking about this album. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound uneven to me like when I listen to it now. Yeah. No, I I, I was loving it this week, man. Oh, dude, yeah. So it was recorded at Fort Apache South, engineered by Sean Slade, produced by Volcano Sons and Sean Slade. Sean co-founded the original Fort Apache, which I believe was in Boston proper. There was Fort Apache North in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Fort Apache South in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I don't know how those, how close those communities are to Boston, but I think probably pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll be seeing Sean and Fort P- Apache again for Buffalo Tom's debut on SST. And I believe even sooner on Dinosaur Jr.'s Bug. Oh, yeah. Uh, but really, a who's who uh, recorded albums there. Boo Radley's, Doss Dahman recorded the album Mousetrap there. Uh, Yola Tango, Steve Wynn, Sebado recorded Bake Sale, Sebado 3 and Harmacy there. Ooh. Hellmel, Interstate, The Pixies, tons more. Yeah. And Sean had a hand in a lot of those as well. It was released in September 1988 on CD, LP, and cassette. Hey, before we go to the tracks, let me hit you with some Spaceman. Okay. I've got some Spaceman for this one. Nice. Okay. So from the SST catalog, Michael Whitaker on first. Peter Prescott and his fabled Volcano Sons bring their pile-driving juggernaut of sound to Lawndale Rock City. 
with a sound as thick as a single volume encyclopedia and hooks that catch well more than limits allow. Listen as Brother Superior, Laugh Riot, and 11 more blinding tracks let the suns shine in. LP cassette CD. It makes you wonder when the spaceman was writing this stuff, if he just grabbed an LP and picked two songs. <laughs> it's always funny, the songs that they single out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, hey, he singled out Laugh Riot. That might be my favorite one on the record. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Spoiler alert. Hmm. It, it And, you know, his description is kind of what I like about uh, Volcano Suns. It is pummeling. Yeah. And I love it. All right, well, let's get to these songs, man. Mm-hmm. History lesson, part two. Okay, you said maybe, Ryan? Like, because this first song just fucking slays so hard. Can I have the key? Yeah. It's so maniacal, hey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Written by Peter, another one of these amazing SST album, album openers. Mm-hmm. It has a real Burma feel. Yeah. Which, you know, whatever, like... You know, well, my answer to that is like Peter was a huge part yep. of Burma's sound. That's my answer to yeah, that. Yeah, well, he wrote too, right? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, I just love the part where the guitar drops out and it drops down to Bob's bass and then just with that perfectly distorted tone. Uh, oh, and the hot, the high vocals? Yeah. Yeah. He's doing his best. Peter's doing some Iggy. You know, he's going, <laughs> Ugh, and stuff like that. Oh, I love that part. And then the thing where the guitar doubles the vocals. Every, every time I heard that, this the song I'm about to reference came out way later, but uh, it made me think of that Wagbeard song. Which Obs- one? Obscure Canadian reference, by the way. Uh, number and everything yeah. will be okay. That one? Yeah. I yeah. knew it. I knew you were going to say that. You knew I was going to say that? Well, no, not... You started talking about Wagbeard, and I'm like, oh, I know what song that is. Yeah. Yeah, man. So uh, that song's up on, like, streaming, or that album. So everyone should go check out the Calgary, Alberta band Wagbeard and their album Ice Station Deborah. Listen to the whole thing, because it's a, just a fucking awesome album. Yeah. Uh, but the song Number One number one with a Bullet, that's what it's called. I can't remember what the song is. I'm going to have to listen to the one we're done the show. Pretty sure that's what it's called. Um, yeah, just awesome. Awesome band from Calgary from the early nineties. And of course, Ryan, everything Volcano Suns is streaming the merge reissues, uh, and it's all up on their band camp, even the quarter stick record, except for the two SST albums. Crime Against Humanity. But it, I checked for people who don't have it, it's up on YouTube, so you can hear this record, but. And you can, you can find first pretty darn easy. Yeah. Thing of beauty is hard to find. Hmm. Okay. Uh, love the, the treated backing vocals, the sitar. It, it all really adds to this song in a really cool way. A real corker, Ryan, a fine choice for a lead track. Can I have the key? Super yep. corker. Yep. Track two, Brother Superior, another of Peter's songs. Like I said in the interview, the sitar lick on this is it called a lick on a sitar, Ryan? I think so. Okay. I think that's the technical term. Well, it gives it a real 60s feel. Uh, the harmony vocals on the chorus part are really good. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird structure structurally, but cool. There's only really one chorus, if you want to even call it that, and it's near the end of the song. 
but it's kind of gives it an anthemic feel, I would say. Yeah. This was a fave for me. It's great. It almost sounds like a 12 string at yeah. times and yeah. it sounds like the birds almost. Yep. That that was I kind of got that reference. Um I just love Bob's bass playing on it. Great melodic bass playing. He's playing a Rick 4005 back then, I believe. Like he does the Travis Bean with Shellac, but I think he's playing a Rick with uh, the Volcano Suns and it sounds awesome. Hmm. Okay. The next one is Belly Full of Lead. Ooh! Oh, yeah. <laughs> Written by Chuck Hahn and Peter. This is more like a touch-and-go noise rocker. Some it's great... A, it sounds like Big Black almost. Yeah, yeah. Some great noisy guitar. Yeah, the way the drums are kind of syncopated like that, for sure. Right, I, yep. right. Uh, Peter just has this totally unhinged vocal. Some cool samples. Hard to make out what the person is saying, but... It sounds like some sort of like news report or something. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, track four is Meat and Potatoes, written by Peter. This is a bit of a slower one, but when the chorus comes in, again, has some Burma vibes to it. But, I mean, you know, Peter wrote Learn How, which is just a major Burma jam too, so. Yeah. Yeah, I got some No Means No vibes on this track too, the way the bass comes in with the plucked guitar. Okay. Track five is A Definite Maybe, written by Peter and Bob. Love Chuck's noisy guitar playing. Volcano Suns definitely have a sound, and this track is a good example of it, I think. Mm -hmm. Double-tracked vocals, you know, throughout the track. Hard to tell if it's Peter doubling himself. Uh, He's a great singer, by the way, Peter. Yeah, I know, eh? He's got a very distinctive sound, and it's awesome. I think it would have been cool like i kind of asked him in the interview if if that was like something that they got criticized for or, or came up in every article it just seems like it, that would be a thing that people would point the drummer to. the drummer's the singer yeah oh it's so rare yeah well i was trying i was trying to think like well grant hart but he's not he doesn't sing lead on every song you on know? every song i know yeah pigment vehicle yeah no means tony no. Tony from Shallow, North Dakota, No Means No, The Band. Yeah. The Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, at the end, the stepping in the mud part, that's definitely someone else doing the, the call and response part. Maybe Bob, since he co-wrote the song. Mm. It's got a sweet opening bass lick on that track, man. Whoa. Yeah. We'll cross that bridge when we jump off it though it can be painful sitting on a fence. I love the lyrics, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked a lyric sheet for this. Some of them are hard to make out. Uh, the next one is Where the Wrecks Go, written by Peter. Uh, Trisha Matthews on violin really stands out on this track, her playing. Great fuzzy riff anchoring the song. Peter's vocal is great. Structurally, the song is just weird. There's basically one verse and then like three completely different choruses. The now I know where all the wrecks go part, the Ophelia reaches in with a golden arm part, and the all these twisted motors won't keep you company part. And a slight return at the end too. Yeah, it's a weird song, but it works. The ending sounds like Elliot Sharp with that wild violin and cello going Mm -hmm. off. It sounds like something off, you know, Tessellation Row or whatever. Track seven is Nature and Me, written by Peter Gary Whalick and Steve Michener. As you mentioned, Ryan, the their debut, The Bright Orange Years, was reissued in 2009 with a bunch of bonus tracks. 
and a studio version of this song is included. Mm-hmm. I don't actually own the reissue. Do you? Does it say anything about? No, the liners are not really expansive. I here. thought maybe that was on a comp or something. I couldn't find if it was completely unreleased or if because there's singles on there, right? But that didn't come off a single, so I I was curious. And I'm also curious if uh, Gary and Steve played on that version of it. Because that might be, you know, one of the few studio tracks with those guys on it. Yeah, it doesn't say when or where it's from. It just says Nature and Me, written by Peter Gary. Peter and Gary, that's it. Hmm. It's a cool version. I like this one. You know, this one's far superior for me. Mm -hmm. Gary Whalick is credited with guitar on the sleeve of this album. Uh, but it doesn't say where he plays. I'm assuming possibly on this one since, you know. He's a co-writer. Yeah, it would only make sense. Uh, he is on Bumper Crop, crop too. He's credited with electric sitar. It, this one's a real rocker for sure. Hurricanes, volcanoes, and tidal waves, they're all knocking at the door. Yeah, it's a fast one for Volcano Suns. Volcano Suns are very mid-tempo. This one's pretty fast, and then it ends suddenly. Yeah. makes you. It's a good song. makes you wonder why it didn't make it onto one of the first three records. It just shows you how prolific they were. Oh, yeah. Okay, the next one is Laugh Riot, written by Peter and Julie Cantor. I think Peter says she was his girlfriend at the time in the interview. I could mm-hmm. be wrong about that, though. I assume she chipped in on the lyrics. Um uh, I like Peter's vocals when he really yells, which he does a lot on this song. (laughs) Hey, it's a great opener for the B-side. Yeah, it's my very own personal portable laugh riot. It's the inside scoop on every private joke I wasn't allowed to get. Okay, and then we go into Slope and Hood, written by Peter. Speaking of prolific, like, Peter's just cranking these songs out. Oh, yeah. It start. It, this song starts out like something you'd hear the Melvins do with that beating on the toms, and slam. Yeah, slamming the bass on the toms. Yeah, it, all you need is like Dale Crover hitting that sheet metal or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then it goes into like this total Tad esque dirge, <laughs> including the vocals <laughs> and the kind of tale it tells. Just made me think of Tad hiding behind the corners of the tool shed, flatbeds. Perfectly noisy guitar riffing, and you know it's just some glorious feedback. Yeah, these guys were so underappreciated, man. Yeah. Wow. The sleeve also says plus a bunch of people yelling, and it seems like they're all yelling on this track. Staying up late, up to no good, lurking under the bed is a slope and hood. Whatever a slope and hood is, do you know what it is? I don't. It sounds bad. Whatever it is. Yeah, it's not good. I wonder if they were underappreciated. In their era, though, because it's, you know, they're one of those bands where I'm sure they got good write-ups and stuff in zines, but you just can't find any of that now. Yeah, yeah, and I bet, you know, there's a bit of live footage online. Their shows were great. Um, People would have loved them, seeing them live, you know. Um, I just don't feel like they got as much recognition as they should have, and I feel like a part of it is... This is the guy from Mission of Burma. Yeah. And that's such a shame. Yeah. Well, that can be hard, right? Yeah. That can go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next one is Commune, written by Peter. 
it starts out with someone going, hey man, watch it. I think that's what they say anyways. <laughs> the lyrics are awesome. Yeah. I, I think this is one Peter says they played fairly regularly after this, which is odd because it's a weird one to choose off this album for me. It's basically a list of complaints you'd have yeah. if you lived in a commune. <laughs> like my shoes are lost, the toilet's broke. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, track four, What's Happening to Me, written by Chuck, Bob, and Peter. Peter says in the interview this one has a quasi-Hendrix vibe. It definitely uses what's generally known as the Hendrix chord. At least that's what I've always called it. Uh, it's got some cool psychedelic samples throughout. Maybe made by Nick Melon Melonado. Gets a credit on the LP with as samples. Mm-hmm. That break in the middle where it drops down to that bass run and then the band kicks back in and Peter lets loose with that howl. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Oh yeah. Ends with a sample of some feet walking rhythmically, rhythmically down a hall or something. And then pans it left to right and then it goes right into the next track, Shriny. Kind of with Peter keeping time with the footsteps on the ride. Mm-hmm. It blends into that sitar sound with the weird... Is this, is this the one that you said kind of sounded like Lynn drums? Is this the one? No, I think I was talking about... Um, belly Full of Lead? Belly Full of Lead. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. This, one, this one has got some weird drum sounds, though, kind of like... It sounds like wood. I think he's playing something like a tabla or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Shriny's written by Peter. It's a four-minute psych jam with Chris George on sitar. Looks like Chris went on to play in a kind of hair metal light band along the lines of Mr. Big or something like that, called Dear Mr. President. Uh, they had an album on Atlantic in 1988, but looks like that was it. But, Ryan, interestingly, it was produced by Mick Jones. Really? A foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me there. Uh, some... what's, what's the name of the band? Again, Mr. Mr. Big? No, 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 no. The, no, I know. Oh, I dear, know. I, <laughs> dear I Mr. Know President. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how's their record? Uh, it's pretty awful. See, I knew you listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, this one's got Bob on trumpet. Uh, it works well as an interlude before the final track, I'd say, which is Neck of Rubber, Ooh. written by who else? Peter Prescott. A real dirgy rocker to close out the record. Lots of hooting and hollering in the chorus. Uh, the end just dissolves into total chaos. Kind of a fitting way to end the end the record, I'd say. Yeah, lots of tempo changes. It's kind of all over the place, but it's perfectly Volcano Suns. Yeah, this is a noisy record. Yeah. In oh a good yeah. Way. That's the thing. Like, like I, I love noise rock. Noise rock bands. I've. I, I've collected all the old stuff. I'm buying all the new stuff and I never hear Volcano Suns mentioned. Yeah. And that bugs the heck out of me. Yeah, man. Uh, Ellie, Andy Kelman for All Music said, On Farst, the boys are an artsy version of early Mudhoney, but quite possibly more what? drunken. That's saying something. Farst is a farce because it seemingly thrives on a grab bag of unexpected things. Found sounds and samples, cello, violin, and even sitar. The arrangements are constantly on the verge of breakdown, like an axle threatening to drop off a vehicle. 
It's Volcano Suns at their weirdest, noisiest, and most thrown together, but it still holds up somehow. It's probably the sense of humor that keeps it up. Mm. I can get behind a comparison to early Mud Honey. Maybe. It's got some pretty dirgy riffs, man, and some, you know, pretty fuzzed out sounds. Yeah. Lots of feedback and yeah. I feel like Mud Honey was maybe a bit more garagey and straight ahead than some of the Volcano Sun stuff though. Yeah, that's true. The artwork's pretty awesome. Uh oh, yeah. done by Eleanor Ramsey, who also designed the cover of Bumper Crop, Thing of Beauty, uh, Career in Rock, and the first customized EP and some other stuff as well by some other bands. I'm not, is this a balloon on the cover? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, it's someone rubbing a balloon on some, someone carrying a decapitated head to like get the balloon all staticky so that you can like, you know, stick it to the wall and it'll, it'll stay on the wall with static. Good one. I didn't even see the decapitated head. (laughs) (laughs) You're focusing so much on the balloon. Uh, well, did, at first I thought it was a bowling ball, but then it's got that balloon knot. Yeah. Did you notice like the lettering on Farst? Like the yep. A A is like made out of a tie and yep. stuff like that. Okay, yep. good. I noticed that. It kind of reminds me of No Means No's old logo. Like Oh, from like... Small Parts? Yeah, from Small Parts. Yeah, right, right. theirs is way cooler because it's mm-hmm. got like body parts in it. But yeah. the C made me, make, made me think of that on this. Right. And then the back cover, I guess, is just more, it looks like, actually, if this was a gatefold, this would probably be one picture. Looks that way. And it's got Volcano Suns written in a circle with, like, flaming lettering. And then what appears to be the, the silhouetta. Is that a silhouetta? A little, silo, a little silhouetta of a woman Could be. A po- pointing a pistol at you. Where? Where's the pistol? She's holding a gun, pointing oh, it at yeah. you, man. Okay, I see it now. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> All right. Uh, the photo of the band by Bob Weston's pretty cool. Devo-esque? Yeah, yeah. Bougie boy. Right? Yep. Uh, a little quote by uh, Thomas Berger. Berger? I don't know. Peter says his name properly in the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly a favorite of Peter's. Best known for his novel, Little Big Man, written in 1964. A bunch of his novels have been made into movies, uh, including Little Big Man. 19- have you seen that movie? No. Dustin Hoffman? No, I've never seen it. That's a great movie. Oh, yeah? That's worth checking out, Little Big Man, for sure. Okay. Uh, in 1984, he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Feud. And then we've just got all the credits on the other side. Uh, an address to send hate mail to? <laughs> That's what it says. Oh, and worshipful, worshipful praise as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they didn't get too much hate mail. I hope they only got worshipful, worshipful praise. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any dead wax, Ryan? Not on mine. How about yours? No. No. It's a shame. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we're over to the ballot result then. Yeah, man. Ballot result. Whew. There is a lot to pick from. Yeah, well, my favorites were Can I Have the Key, Brother Superior, Nature and Me, and Slope and Hood. Not Laugh Riot. No. Whoa, holy smokes. Amazing. We might have to, uh, bit of a grudge match here. I'll go with Can I Have the Key, though, because it's just, 
insanely killer. Well, it doesn't matter to me. You're the you're the bigger fan, so you pick. If you want to do Laugh Riot, I'm I'm down with that, man. I want to do Laugh Riot then. Okay. You got it. Nice. Okay. Friendship retained. Okay. There you go. Hey, thanks to Peter for being on the show. Oh yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Oh dude. Get ready to pour some clams in a glass. <laughs> because it's SST two eleven. The Zoog's Rift Murdering Hell's Happy Cretans LP. Whoa, the liquid moamo. Can't wait, man. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.